Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Bill Toffler, a family physician from Portland, Oregon, who was fired from his practice for treating his patients with the same respect and dignity that he had done for 34 years. He is a victim of the intolerance of the tolerant. I just love Bill. Well, I'm going to really look forward to talking to him. But before we get to the interview, we did want to let you know about an event that may interest you. Medicine's Integrity, Reclaiming the Doctor-Patient Relationship is the theme of this year's Catholic Medical Association Annual Education Conference. It will be held virtually on September 25th and 26th. And the CMA made the switch from in-person to virtual due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but is excited to foster the faith and fellowship as they can be national experts in the area of humanities, law, psychology, theology, and medicine to shine a light on important national and cultural issues that might compromise the the doctor-patient relationship. The conference's keynote speaker is EWTN's own anchor and award-winning journalist Raymond Arroyo. Also, pro-life activist Abby Johnson will speak. And attendees can earn up to 36.75 CME credit hours, and they can have access to all the talks throughout the year. Registration is now open and more information available at www.cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Andrew, in this first uh, segment, we'd like to review some of the things we've covered previously on the show about what are some of the protections for conscience rights. We discussed that in our, our 13th episode, and we're at over 170 now, but in that episode, we discussed various things that are on the books as laws protecting doctors such as Dr. Toffler. What are some of the, what are your maybe top three things that listeners should know about what are on the books? Yeah, I would I would say, you know, we'll, we'll cover a short version here, but I would point to that episode. It's an evergreen episode. It's a couple years old, but I couldn't believe that we scored an interview with someone from HHS. Uh, and they, you know, Ariana Grousseau on that episode really laid out a lot of things that I didn't know about as a student. And I was happy to learn about that. You feel like you're all alone and you might be discriminated against because of your views, but there are things in place to protect you. And you do have legal recourse in, in this way through the Office of Civil Rights. So uh, one of them is the church amendment. What's that? Yeah, there's there's several amendments. The church amendments are are one one group of laws that were enacted in the 70s. And there's several of these things that are really in place to protect people from having to do things that violate their conscience. There's really two things that providers and hospitals and clinics are protected from. Uh, religious discrimination and conscience discrimination. Uh, and there's some overlap there, but the church amendments are protections of your conscience rights so that you do not have to perform or refer for abortion or sterilization or participate in even as a student. So if there was a time when you felt coerced to do that or you were forced to do so against your will, you would have a legal recourse where basically you file a complaint and the Office of Civil Rights would investigate. And basically the penalty is the people who are forcing you or trying to force you to violate your conscience, they're going to lose federal funding, which is a, a huge deal. So pretty much they just comply and will respect your beliefs. So a second one would be the Public Health Service Act of 1996. What does that do? Well, that's another one. In, in 1996, and, and the biggest thing is that if there was a take-home, I think, for our listeners, is that there's not just one law. There are multiple and multiple laws that are enforced. But that one in specific talked about the referrals, even including in training. If in training, you know, one of the common workarounds that I see is the idea that, okay, if you're not going to do this procedure, you can send it to one of your colleagues or you can refer it off to someone else. But we know as Catholics, we can't refer for an abortion or we can't refer for birth control. It's, I mean, it's just asking somebody else to do the dirty work. The, the problem is, is we're against it happening because it's an intrinsic evil. So this would protect us from even referrals. Now, a third one is called the, the Weldon Amendment, which adds to those protections in 2005. And you even list the Affordable Care Act as having some protections. Is that really possible? Yeah, mo- most people, I think, who may listen to the show would consider Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act to be kind of a four-letter word 
But buried inside there, believe it or not, there are some specific protections, namely in section 1553 against assisted suicide. So you don't have to participate in that. And then additionally, and I'm missing the chapter and verse here. Here it is, section 1303, um, article B, section four, believe it or not, if you want to look it up, uh, it refers to abortion. So you do have protection against both abortion and assisted suicide. You don't have to participate in those. And then on the books, there's also protection for uh, religious belief. Yes, there's several different acts. The Public Health Service Act uh, in Section 553, Section 1908, Section 1974, Section 508 of the Social Security Act, everything that prohibits discrimination, there's always the list of age, race, color, national origin, disability, sex, and religion. So basically, religion is one of the things that they cannot discriminate against you for. And you, you see this in things like job interviews, you know, they're not allowed to ask about certain things. And religion is one of them. So if you feel like you're discriminated against because of your religion, you do have a recourse there. Andrew, you're full of wonderful information. Uh, I think one of the things that I think of when I see these is that how helpful are these laws if we happen to get in a, an administration that won't enforce them? And is it even more important that we change the culture than changing the laws? Well, that's the thing is that all of these things are on the books, but in America, you know, there's the legislative branch that's supposed to make the laws, the judicial branch is supposed to judge laws, and the executive branch that's supposed to enforce the laws. Executive branch, namely the White House on down, includes the HHS, Health and Human Services Department. Under that is the Office of Civil Rights. They are the people who decide whether these laws have teeth or not. So when we have a friendly HHS for religious freedom, then we are going to be able to have recourse there. There's times when certain laws are not enforced as much as others. So I think the biggest thing is obviously trying to do your best, but knowing that if you're in a tight spot, you do have protection. And before our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. Our guest, Dr. Bill Toffler, has a picture on the website of his new clinic, which is holyfamilyclinic.com, opening September 8th, Mary's birthday. In the picture, he had a, has on a white coat. Physicians didn't start wearing white coats until 1900. The question, what color coat did they wear before white, and what profession did they steal the idea of wearing a white coat from? You'll have to hang on till the end of the show. We'll be back with more here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome to today's special guest interview, a heroic doctor in a hostile culture, Dr. Bill Toffler. I'm sure he'd be the last person to call himself heroic. I will let you listeners be the judges of that. Bill is an emeritus professor of family medicine at Oregon Health Science and University, where he taught for 34 years and had a broad scope of medical practice ranging from delivering babies to geriatric and palliative care. He is the co-founder of the soon-to-open Holy Family Catholic Clinic in Portland, Oregon. He's also co-founder and national director of Physicians for Compassionate Care Education Foundation, a nonprofit promoting compassionate care for severely ill patients without sanctioning or assisting their suicide. He's also been a member of the Physician Resource Council at Focus on the Family for over 20 years. He is committed to defending the longstanding medical prohibition against doing harm. He's frequently invited to speak about such issues at national and international conferences. He's been interviewed on television and radio, including NPR, 60 Minutes, Good Morning America, as well as international media in Canada, Australia, the UK, and Japan. And yet, he deigns to be on our humble radio program. Bill has seven children and 22 grandchildren. Bill, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Oh, it's great to be here. It's a privilege. And um, by the way, I'm, I'm honored to be among all the giants that you've had on your program. And so oh, I, I feel I feel uh, well, very much. Bill, you have lucky. been a hero of mine since I first learned years ago about how you have openly practiced your faith in what can be truly described as a hostile work environment. So start with some background. How did you start to take your faith seriously? Are you one of those converts who seems to make some of the best Catholics? Well, unfortunately, I'm not. I, I'm a cradle <laughs> Catholic, and uh, 14 of the first 16 years of my education were in Catholic schools. The only exception was when I was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. My dad was stationed at the Army War College. He was a 31-year veteran, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and then had several careers after that. But he retired a Brigadier General 
uh, last assignment was division or core uh, core artillery. I think it's the larger segment of the army yes. divisions. Anyway, the bottom line is he was the seventh uh, corps commander of artillery in Stuttgart, Germany. So the point was that Carlisle did not have any Catholic schools. And so I did uh, matriculate in the public school there, which was a little different experience and then returned to Arlington, Virginia, where I finished out at Bishop O'Connell High School in uh, North Arlington. And But despite that, I think my faith was uh, was just something that you kind of took for granted. And I, I think there were probably three or four real turning points in my life with respect to faith development. And the first was uh, my marriage. Uh, I married Marlene, my late wife, uh, who passed away a little over six years ago of a metastatic leiomyosarcoma of the uterus. And, you know, we, had, we were blessed with about five and a half years um, knowing that she was ultimately going to die. And that made that experience very special because you don't take any day for granted. In fact, I think we only had one argument in the last five years of her life. Uh, that was very different, very different frequency than in the first 35. But back to my Catholicism, uh, she was uh, very much a, a Catholic, 100% Italian. And basically, I think uh, half the saints that we all honor and, and pray to for intercession come from the Italian uh, uh, country. And, and, and she knew them all well. And she helped me become a much better Catholic um, throughout our marriage. And I think that's number one. Then two, of course, even though we had uh, you know, perfect marriage like Ozzy and Harriet, we, we did go on a, a marriage encounter weekend when we were struggling about seven years in our marriage. And basically, uh, that that changed my life. That was I, I started to realize what a sacrament that uh, that ceremony was. That uh, was probably um, more worried about the details of the wedding at the time than about the real religious value. But the marriage encounter weekend, and we were blessed with being asked to present them. You know, and I used to think that was because maybe we had something to share with people. The reality was that it was. Uh, it was after writing talks on them about the third weekend, we were having an argument <laughs> over those talks. And I said, you know, I know why God chose us for this role. Um, we needed the help. We needed more than just one weekend. <laughs> but, you know, that, that was number two. It was my longstanding uh, marriage and, and very productive. As you said, we were blessed with 22 grandchildren. I only regret that she's not here to celebrate with them because she loved babies. And and that was um, that was opened me to being open to having kids. I, I literally was so delusional, Tom and Andrew, that when I when I uh, was being asked to let's go ahead and have kids, I said, you know, we can't have kids. We don't have a perfect marriage. And that was that was the sort of formation I had. And thankfully, you know, my residency. I said, well, I'm too busy. I'm I'm in my first year residency. And she said, well, I'm not. And uh, that was the start of our our brood of seven <laughs> kids. Thank God, God blessed me despite those foibles and misguided thinking. The, the third event, I, I think, was when uh, I was blessed to go on a three-day three conference put on the, by Human Life International, the late Father Paul Marks, who started that wonderful organization in 122 countries, I think, at the time that he died. And I was blessed. I was on call that week. I was an assistant professor, uh, maybe associate, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. The reality was I was on call for the week. And somehow, by the grace of God, I was able to attend every single minute of that conference. And within a half a day of the three-day conference, I listened to the medical rationale. Uh, and I was convinced they were right about the abortifacient properties of birth control and the medical implications of prescribing those. Uh, I really didn't need the other two and a half days. But the other two and a half days, I was wrestling with myself. Could I actually make the change in my life? I had you know, seven kids at that point. I had uh, responsibilities to teach medical students and residents at a major secular university. Uh, can I keep my job? You know, and besides that, I, I, you make money doing these things and in, inserting uh, uh, things into the body or doing vasectomies and the like. And I was really worried about that. And I didn't even tell Marlene, my wife, because I was afraid she'd hold my hand to the fire uh, before I could really take this step. But I told the front desk, I said, I'm not doing this anymore, and uh, don't schedule them with me. Don't schedule people who want birth control pills. Um, and I'd already given up IUDs before that, believe it or not, because of most, almost all GONs gave it up at one point because of the infection rate, as you may recall, yes. Tom. Yes. And so I was actually somewhat elated because I, I think in my own conscience, I knew that they were acting with an abortifacient property inside the womb after a conception had already taken place in the tube. 
but I, it, it took the infection rate to cause me, and one GYN had given it up, and to cause me to join him in, in not doing it. For me, it was moral reasons, more, and the infection was just a trigger to get there. And then I gave up vasectomies and birth control after that uh, Humana Vitae conference. You know, Humana Vitae, as you all know, and the, your audience probably knows, written by Paul VI back in 1968. And what a prophetic and beautiful document that is. If you haven't read it, you, if you've read it, you should reread it. I, I encourage your audience to do it. And, and so I took that step in faith. And, you know, it went two weeks before the first patient came in and, and wanted to have birth control. And I saw it on the old paper charts that we had, P&P, pap and pelvic, and BCP. I still remember it vividly. So I was really nervous. This is the first time I'm going in to see a patient and I'm not gonna be able to do what she's asking for. So I took the history briefly, went and did the pap and pelvic. And at the close of the visit, I said, well, so you, you also want birth control pills. Am I correct? And she said, yes. I said, do you know what your, all, all your options are? And I'm really sweating bullets now. And she's basically yes. says, well, some that's an uncomfortable me. position to be in, right? Exactly. Exactly. Andrew. So I, I basically um, listened to what she had to say. I said, well, there's also natural family planning and started to talk about that. And she was initially interested but within about 20 or 30 seconds, she was kind of glazed over and I realized it was futile. And I said, well, it sounds like you're not really interested in anything but birth control. I'm a cons- am I correct? She said, yes. I said, well, and I'm really nervous. I said, uh, well, if you'd come to me a, a couple of weeks ago, I probably would have just taken out a prescription pad. But what I'm about to tell you is a reflection on me, not you, and what I have decided to do with my own practice. And it's no judgment of anybody else, but I, I'm just not doing that anymore. And I, I don't want to bother you with um, that. I just want you to know I'm not doing that. And she said, well, but, but why? And I tried to backpedal and not tell her. The more <laughs> I tried not to tell her, she wanted to know. So finally I said, well, I'll tell you. But I'm, again, I'm nervous. I'll tell you, but if you, if you, uh, no, I want to know. So I tell her the mechanism. And I'm most comfortable not with the theology, but with the medicine. Sure. And I said, well, you know, there's ovulation that gets suppressed, and that's probably the dominant mechanism. But there's also changes in the cervical mucus. So when the sperms, they don't have nice swimming channels that you can see in these microscopic pictures with electron microscopes. And, but there's a conception that took place in your tube. And it takes about five to seven days for that to implant in your womb. And the, the, the lining of the womb with birth control gets thinned. And I couldn't finish the sentence before she said, oh, you mean it would be like an abortion? <laughs> and I said, well, I wasn't going to use that, that word, but, but, but yes. <laughs> and she said, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. I would never want to do anything that causes an abortion. <laughs> so I'm just wiping the sweat from my brow and say, oh, my God, thank you. I, 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 you know, maybe this isn't going to be so hard. And, of course, that was not true. <laughs> but, but I think yeah, I had only little faith to go forward. And God rewarded that little bit of faith uh, with, uh, with, with uh, a win. So, Bill, you've had kind of a, an impressive conversion over time. You, you married well. You I'm, chose I'm, a my, slow, I'm a slow learner. Let me say that. <laughs> you married well. You chose my favorite uh, medical specialty in family medicine. You were teaching family <laughs> medicine. You told us about kind of that first, uh, I don't want to say a near miss, but, you know, a, God blessed your, your right. perseverance in the faith. But you continued to to convert closer to the faith, and that prepared you for some of your your trials that lay ahead. Is that right? Oh, absolutely right. And I, I think the preparation. You know, we began this program with a prayer. I think uh, when we're trying to start this Catholic practice, we begin and end with prayer. God lead me is what I heard one time from one of my colleagues in the Christian brothers and sisters at Focus in the Family. I never forget that devotion. He said, "Don't say God help me. God lead me." And so. You know, the other part is, you know, when you were talking about Hero Tom, I think, you know, I'm not a hero. It reminds me of the Beetle Bailey cartoon where the sergeant is asking for volunteers and Beetle's sitting there, you know, you know, hapless, uh, you know, not like me. And everybody else takes a step backward and the sergeant says, thank you. Thank you for volunteering. So uh, that's, and literally that, you know, with assisted suicide in the state of Oregon, where, where, you know, we now consider as part of the medical armamentarian the solution to suffering is to end the life of the sufferer here and unfortunately it's spread to uh you know nine other jurisdictions uh including our nation's capital uh and all the way out to hawaii 
So the, the reality is that um, when that happened, one of my Christian brothers and sisters, a, OBGYN, a GYN oncologist, Bill Petty, came and asked me if I, could help, if I could help him with the fight against assisted suicide. This is like in April. And I said, well, I'll help any way I can. He said, well, I'm going to spend every moment of my time, apart from sleeping and working, fighting against it. And, and he did that over the next two weeks. And he so impressed me as a role model that I, I did the same thing. And I also made this little childlike promise to God. I said, you know, God, I'm going to go to daily mass. And I hope that because of my faithfulness in going to daily mass, we'll, we'll, we'll defeat assisted suicide in the state of Oregon. And, and of course, as you know, we lost 5149. But by the time I'd gone to mass, daily mass for six months, I, uh, I said, this is good fruit. And uh, I didn't stop going. And I've been going to daily mass for 26 years. And so I think my... my I look at God's grace, the Holy Spirit guiding me. And whenever I forget to ask for that guidance, for, for to lead me, then I'm, I'm lost. I mean, that's the, that's the reality. Now, as, as you were living out your faith more fully with, with every passing year, did you find yourself feeling less welcome in your secular university? Well, you know, it's interesting. I really felt blessed for... Um, 31 years out of my tenure there. My, my first chair was there for 14 years. He was someone who came down to my little town of Sweet Home where I practiced for six years before coming to the university uh, 34 or five years ago. And basically, uh, he, he appreciated me. I mean, I, I was a clinician. I was experienced. I'd kind of been in a very small town, small practice. And, you know, that, as you know, and that, that is a, you know, builds metal. So I came and I led the practice with respect to clinical care. And uh, then he needed somebody to fill in for someone who was leaving. One of my colleagues from my residency was actually teaching medical students. I knew nothing about that in the sense of the formality of it. He was good at it. But he was leaving to go into geriatrics. So he asked me to take that role. And that actually was mo most of my career was teaching medical students. And so it was, um, it, was, it was a blessing to do that, that first year, 14 years. Then the next year, 17 years, John Saltz and, and Andrew, you probably know him. He's one of the most prominent family physicians in the country, uh, academically and every other way. He's an excellent clinician. He's smart. And he, he, of all three of my chairs in my 34 years, he welcomed the diversity. He was very proud of the fact that we had someone who was leading the effort to pass assisted suicide and me leading the effort to block assisted suicide from passing in the state of Oregon. And Those kind of people are dinosaurs, aren't they? They're disappearing. Exactly, exactly, Tom. It, they're truly liberal. Is the point? Yes. And even if they, even if they have a viewpoint, which he does, by the way, uh, you know, he's very much his wife and he are both on the Democratic side of the political aisle. But the point is that he appreciated the point of view, even if he didn't agree with it, that I represented. And so I always was very, um, very comfortable up up until this last three years before I was not, my contract was not renewed. And then and your new chair, if you uh, remember correctly, was actually somebody you taught as a resident. Absolutely. She's, she, she was indeed. She's very bright. Uh, you know, we have a four-year residency now. She's an MD, PhD. Uh, she's very articulate. She is, uh, she deserves to be a chair. She's, um, unfortunately, I think she's not knowledgeable about the things about which we are when we're talking about the real effects of, of birth control. I mean, some one of our colleagues in the Catholic Medical Association, Angela Nefrangi, along with nine other authors, submitted a 98-page petition to the FDA to help them to change the package insert for women so that they'd be informed about the myriad of side effects associated with birth control. And these range from from two different types of cancer, breast cancer and cervical cancer, osteoporosis, clots in your legs that can go up to your lungs and kill you, strokes, heart attacks, dementia, not to mention there are some things that I wasn't even aware of, you know I'm kind of interested in this, uh, autoimmune problems like multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease. And we've and had Angela on the show and covered that very document with her. It's fascinating. It is, and it's a, it's a must-read I, I literally gave it to my clinical supervisor, who also was one of my former residents, to read. And uh, I said, read this. I, I, I wouldn't challenge any mother to read this document and then be content to give her daughter birth control pills. 
you know, and if you're not bothered by the medical side effects here in the Northwest where we pride ourselves on the environment, you ought to be a little bit disturbed about the fact we're messing up the fish because it doesn't get cleaned out by the sewage system. It goes right into the Willamette River. Well, and if you measure the fish downstream, they are different. They're not, they're, their genders are screwed up and they don't multiply. Yes. Well, it's and a, I it's think, an, Bill, a phenomenon. you know, just how much... <laughs> you know, informed consent and package inserts go into the discussion about whether or not to take a statin, right? And how yes. many people are oh, well-versed in potential side effects. Not so for birth control, right? And oh, absolutely. absolutely. That's such a good analogy because, you know, I, and, I, and I do have a tough time because there are side effects with Lipitor. And so, you know, you have to balance. You're giving it to somebody who may be asymptomatic and you're asking them to take these risks. And, and that's no less true with, well, I, I might take this pill that super physiologic doses of powerful female hormones, and they can cause me death and cancer. I mean, just ask yourself the question epidemiologically. It used to be one in 11 women who had breast cancer. It's one in eight. So what's causing it? You know, could what's we just changing? step back and have a discussion? Well, <laughs> and Bill, before we finish the first half here, what led to your not being welcome anymore in your Department of Family Medicine? Well, you know, there were there was these odd complaints that would out of I think there were like 277 positive complaints. Uh, I had a rating of about 4.7 on a five point scale, wow. which, which by the way, that's not unusual. We we had a very good family medicine practice and uh, department, so I, it's nothing special. But along the lines, there were probably three or four patients in three years of those 277 comments. And there were probably a couple people in the workroom who noticed me talking about things like, gee, if you have sex change surgery and you look at them, those people 10 years later, they have a 19-fold increase of suicide. suicide. Now, I know of no other risk factor that's so high. Now, I'm not even talking to the person who complained. I'm talking to one of my colleagues and we're having a discussion. Somebody overhears the conversation and then reports it, never talks to me about their being concerned about it, never questions. They just say, I'm, I'm bothered by what Dr. Toffler just said. Well, I just shared a fact. An I, th I think that's fact. called triggered, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I triggered. So I triggered him. So, you know, they, they, and then one, the one complaint about uh, a 21 year old pre-medical student comes in, she wants, um, or she's on birth control or she's on, this is something, a discussion I would have with patients almost on a weekly basis over 20 plus years. And, and so she wrote in her at the time, again, she didn't complain to me. She didn't agree with stopping birth control pills, but she said, Dr. Toffer gave me, made me feel guilty about using birth control pills. Now, think about this, Andrew. If you and I were talking to somebody who was smoking and we were telling them about the ill effects of smoking and you probably shouldn't do this, and I'm now the 30th doctor that brought that up, he's mad at me, and he says, I, I didn't go in there to get a lecture about smoking and why did Dr. Toffer bring up smoking? And uh, everybody would have said, good job, Dr. Toffer. You, well, you and think about the, the HPV um, advertisements for the Gardasil vaccine, right? Did you know, Mom? You, you've seen those mm -hmm. advertisements. I mean, it's all played on guilt. But yeah. you, you, and I, I hope to delve into this in the second half of the interview, you have been the victim of intolerance of supposedly the, the tolerant few. So I hope we can address that more. But I think we do have to cut to a break here, Bill. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. All right. Back. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. We're back for our second half of the interview with Bill Toffler about what he endured uh, over being a faithful Catholic physician. Now, Bill, you're, you're nearing the end of your tenure at, uh, in Oregon at the Health Science University, and you told me that you actually recommended looking for all of the complaints against you over the previous three years. What came of that? Well, I was very interested in trying to be a good citizen and responsive to the critiques, you know, not, not just uh, defend myself. I wanted to just know what they all were. And the, the chair got probably 13 responses, uh, 13 complaints, I should say, from all of the different 
department divisions. This is like the education division. This is research division. This is the clinical care division. And so I'm getting complaints that I'd have forgotten even happened, you know, that over, over three years. Well, and that was after a solicitation for complaints. Oh, absolutely. And not a right. solicitation for what are the, what are, you know, this individual's strengths. It's just, have you ever heard anything? Bad? So she collects them all. And, and she, <laughs> Do you have anything on this guy? Didn't he turn in something late 10 years ago? I remember <laughs> yeah. that. Well, it's that kind of thing. And I basically, she was very overwhelmed with how many complaints there were, you know, because basically I think everybody knew I stood for the kinds of things I stood for. It was even across departments. You know, I remember one of the, the OB-GYN attendings coming to me and asking me, well, Bill, I heard you don't prescribe birth control to adolescents. And uh, I said, well, I didn't tell him why I don't prescribe for anybody, but I said, well, uh, no, I don't. He says, well, why is that? Because, you know, essentially you're a smart guy. Why are you, why are you not? Well, I said, you know, I have kids that are adolescents and they go to school and they can't remember their lunch money. And you're asking them <laughs> to take a pill on exactly the same hour every day. And if you miss a pill, that means you're likely to get pregnant. So you've got this false reassurance. So this, quote, success rate, end quote, uh, in adolescents using birth control to avoid pregnancy is about 67%. That means that 33 out of 100 women young women will get pregnant if they're on birth control. It's literally, from a scientific point of view, a recruiting tool for Planned Parenthood. I'm not making that up from my idea. This is from a person, Carol Nan Everett, who ran four mills in Texas. So I, I didn't share that last part with my colleague, but he said, oh, I see what you're saying. And he, because at that point in time, my credibility was at an all-time high at the university. I was running three different courses, the clerkship for the primary care, which included OBGYN, the clerkship for family medicine, and the principles of clinical medicine course, which covered the first two years of medicine with 500 faculty and 250 students. So, so, so what happened sounds- that you became persona non grata, that the, the tolerant people had become intolerant of diversity? Well, that has changed. And I think, you know, my former chair, the one that was there 17 years, John Salt, said it to me when I asked, you know, what's going on. He says, you know, Bill, I don't think you've changed. I think the, the people are around, we're, we're in the uh, woke movement now. He didn't use that because it was pretty woke. But the reality <laughs> is we, we were in the Me Too movement, if you will. And, you know, the, the era of Trump, as he put it, as a Democrat, you know. And so he said, that the, essentially, he was saying things around me have changed. What, what's caused that change? Well, think about it. You have an inculcation of a doctrine, of a narrative, not just in high school, but even in grade school and certainly in college. And you look at the, the leanings politically or ethically or lack of ethically in colleges and university, and you have to question yourself, why are we paying money to most universities to basically indoctrinate, brainwash our good kids? And, and that's, you know, I, I think about even in some Catholic schools, I mean, I, I sent uh, all of our kids, I think, went to something nominally Catholic school. The University of Portland is one. Um, Benedictine College is another university of Dallas. And in Benedictine, I can think of Father Meinrad, God bless him. Uh, he's still there, I understand, from a student who's going there right now. And he, he saved one of my sons. Well, why at a Catholic school should one person be the one who saves my oldest son from going south with respect to his faith? Well, you know, you, you think anybody could do it at a Catholic school, but that's not the case. You can't guarantee. And, and by the way, gonna, Benedictine and University of Dallas are on the Cardinal Newman list. They are faithfully Catholic. I have a daughter at Benedictine, and they are top-notch well, now. And I think yeah. I think one of the things you're getting at, Bill, is just the culture in general. There, in the name of, of diversity, there are some views that are too extreme to be included in that which diversity. Is, which is, yeah, Andrew, interesting from um, on our wall, if you come off the tram that, you know, saves you, about you know two miles going around is a half mile tram from the lower campus to the upper campus. There's a wall of diversity, and of course it's got prominent figures who indeed in their time represented diversity. There's no Christian up there, and I can tell you right now that if you're looking at groups that categorically are okay to uh, dump on and literally discriminate against, I would say it's someone trying to be a faithful Christian. And that is, uh, that is this challenge now because, you know, literally in one of the complaints written down, I can keep my political and religious views to myself, which basically is a, uh, a violation of the standards that are set by our federal government. Well, and you speak about the standards. We were touching on that in the first quarter of this. What advice would you give to folks who might find themselves in an unwelcome environment, especially well, students? 
Well, the, the, the first thing is I think you have to work at what I, I and I know Dr. Ashley Fernandez said this and, and lives this out. If you're in a university, secular university, you've got to have all your ducks in a row yourself as being a credible person. And so I look at one other factor. Uh, for 31 years, I was clearly involved in everything. I was leading in a lot of things. And so it was impossible to just marginalize me as just being somebody that has these wacky views. When I gave up all those titles, it was a coincident with when my wife was ill, I gave up all the titles and basically I, I ultimately officially retired in 2016, the end of 2016, and then continued to work part-time. So I was no longer actively involved in, in the key roles in the university. Then I became fodder, if you will. In other words, it's not, it's not a problem to attack him, get rid of him. He's a voice that's causing a workplace disturbance. He's a voice that's causing some people to be uncomfortable. Kind of if, if you're not at the table, you end up on the menu. There you go. And so I think that's a very well a shorthanded way of saying things. I'm going to have to remember that, Andrew, because I tend to be a little <laughs> long-winded, as you know. So it's, uh, it's very helpful. You know, this is the point, and Ashley's exactly right. And he still, like me, I said, you know, I, I, I was, took some pride in being in a university that would tolerate my diverse point of view. And that changed with a change of chairs and with my change in roles. And so your tenure there ended earlier than you wanted to sometime last year, correct? It is. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a tough thing to swallow whenever, you know, somebody doesn't value you. Um, but, you know, thankfully, I, I, I attribute it to the Holy Spirit and our prayer life and all. Um, you know, the world didn't come crashing in. In fact, very soon afterward, I met people who were interested in starting a, a Catholic practice who, in, indeed, uh, one of them, uh, a PA, Megan Kreff, I'd been a mentor for her while she was in PA school, helping her to get through PA school with her crazy Orthodox Catholic beliefs, you know, and that's very tough. If you want to go into OBGYN or you want to be a person who's doing family medicine, family planning kind of issues come up. And if you say, I'm not doing contraception. So she was just, just grateful. She made it out of PA school and then she's going to go to a Catholic hospital, Providence hospital. And oddly enough, she very first day, I believe a patient comes and wants the morning after pill which is clearly going to work in an abortifacient way in some women. And she, of course, appropriately knows her stuff. Unlike me, when she, she's only 25 at the time, she, she was practicing Orthodox Catholicism within her practice. So I was misguided at that vintage. Well, and, and Bill, you're, what I'm hearing from you is you suffered truly unjust treatment, and you're able to talk about it in a way that's charitable. I would be really angry if it were me. <laughs> yes. What, well, what, what, if anything, have you done in response to this patently unjust treatment? If, if I mean, I'm going to go out and say, if you weren't a Christian, you know, if you were of a different faith, maybe if you were of the Islamic faith, or if you were a Jewish person, and you felt singled out in this way, I'd like to think that there'd be national media or some recourse. Have you found any recourse? Do you feel called well, to take that? Or? You know, I, 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 uh, I think I, I was supported by colleagues much like yourself. I was at the University of Portland Men's Discussion Club, which, uh, which invited me in after the death of my wife, you know, to support me. And basically, uh, so I'm telling the story to, uh, to the little table I'm at. There's probably three tables of 10, eight, 10 men in each one. And the guy to my right's a lawyer. The guy to my left is a retired uh, Oregon judge, um, at Supreme Court judge, and then behind me is Dearman of Scanlon, who's basically a Ninth Circuit Court. And, and so between the three of them, they encouraged me, well, do you mind if I make some contacts? And so, you know, I've talked to a whole bunch of different lawyers um, who believe there's merit to the case, including the Thomas More Society. So, you know, I, I'm not worried about it. I'm not looking back. So I'm trying to keep my eyes forward, but I'm willing to support people <laughs> who are willing to try to make uh, this uh, a legal case. Megan, thankfully, uh, I know that they had a settlement already from uh, the, the quote Catholic end quote hospital here in town that fired her over this uh, not refusing. She knew her stuff that, hey, this is a mission. It's in my contract to follow the ethical and religious directives of the Catholic Church. And, and you have protections now. And I know you all have had a program on, I think, uh, the Office of Civil Rights from yes. Health and Human Services. Right. And they actually are Thank God, 
enforcing the laws that have been in the books for decades. I mean, there, there's the Weldon Amendment, uh, there's the Church Amendment, there's the Hyde Amendment. All of these things protect us, but up until this administration, none of them have been enforced. So you, you have the persecution of the Little Sisters of the Poor for seven years at the Supreme Court level, where they don't want their resources to go to pay for things that are unethical and immoral and against the teaching of the Catholic Church, which, by the way, you know, it's, it's not inferior care. We, we, we aren't having to be apologists like, I have to follow my conscience only. No, this new care, this new practice, Holy Family Catholic Clinic, it's better care. There I are wanted be- to ask you about that, Bill. I mean, and that, that is a perfect springboard because you're talking about the gospel calling us to look forward. God, lead me. What led you to the Holy Family Catholic Clinic. Tell us about that and your vision and where you're at with that. Well, you know, we're not the first. There, thankfully, there are great models before us. There's Ann Nolte in New York, and there's Gianna Centers, and there uh, Wisconsin, uh, Texas, the Bella Clinic in San Francisco. Uh, you know, they're, they're springing up as a reaction, and this is a good part about persecution. The church thrives in persecution. So on one hand, you know, I, I don't like to be persecuted. On the other hand, I, I look at the role model of the apostles. Look, we celebrated. We were worthy of being persecuted and scourged. Well, I'm, quite, I'm not quite there yet, but I, I see that that's <laughs> true, that we ought to be grateful that we're not hiding our light under a bushel, and we have to be willing to uh, not, not to be uh, cavalier about it. We, we're supposed to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves, and we have to be discerning about when is it appropriate to speak up or when should we just be silent as Jesus was when he was being interviewed by Pilate? And you, you, you can't, you know, he was meek. Meek is not a milk toast thing. Meek is being right. strong in your character and gentle and loving with the person you're interacting with. And so this is uh, a good quality and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a Christian quality. And so I'm striving knowing this in your head intellectually. And so what led me to do this? Well, I said, you know, God closes a door and he opens another one. And, you know, I happen to have had all these contacts from people I used to mentor. Now I was now working with them to, uh, to, to try to form this clinic. And by the way, I, I now come to learn after about 10 months why people don't start their private practices and they just join a big organization. <laughs> there is so much bureaucracy that's in the way and money. I mean, we're going to be at a quarter million dollars uh, within a few weeks just being able to get started. And, and so it takes a bit of a leap of faith. On the other hand, I have to remind myself, you know, hey, uh, the stock market just crashed. All, all things are ephemeral here. And what else am I going to do better so with my money? Thank God my kids are all launched. They're all faithful Catholics. I got 22 grandchildren. <laughs> you know, what else am I going to do? And, and I think that's what drives a lot of the success of the Catholic Medical Association. There are lots and lots of doctors who recognize that the way that we need to use our talents or gifts or resources is to support the next generation. And, you know, I know Tom is, and, and you're actually a graduate of the boot camp, I think, Andrew, aren't you? One, one time, I missed you, it by one year, but okay, I felt were, like I got it. I got, a, yeah. I got the, pre, the preview version with, with everybody, with Tom. And, <laughs> and you know, yeah. you're talking about the next generation. That's one of the things I, I'm always thinking when we're recording these shows, okay, I'm, I'm a first year medical student. I'm Catholic. I want to stay Catholic. This type of thing scares me to death. How in the world should I move forward? I mean, you, you make it sound easy being persecuted and sticking to your guns, but just like you were kind of sweating bullets in that first patient who came in there and you're like, "Uh, God help me. What in the world do I say? How how can you, how can you make this bite size for somebody who has to still face that down in their training and in their career? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it's easy. And I, I, I think I do feel for the people who have much more insight at their young age, at, you know, being 22, 24, 25, 26 in medical school, when they have an awareness of what I only became aware of after I was um, in my middle ages. I was absolutely ignorant about the, the teaching and the validity of that teaching in a medical sense that it's better in medical care. If you look at the Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha, they have better outcomes with infertility with their approach with laparoscopic, robotic, very finesse surgery. And unfortunately, there are only 37 of his trained fellows. And so we're desperately wanting one. If anybody ever listening to this program out there is an OBGYN and likes to come to the People's Republic of Portland, where we're going to actually <laughs> have a little, a little light on the hill, 
but that's my dream is that you'd have not only that, but you'd also, um, let me use the word metastasize since we're talking to doctors, you'd spread this throughout <laughs> the country and that, that, that growth that has already happened with fully Catholic uh, centers around the country will continue to grow. And, and so we've actually set up two nonprofits, one over the other. So the overall was Sanctitas Vitae, and then there's a clinic, this one clinic, but we hope and dream and pray that there will be many clinics just like this. So you don't have to park your faith by the door as I once did in going in and seeing a patient. Bill, I'd like to put a plug in, you know, for the younger people, uh, one of the things I do in the Catholic Medical Association is oversee the Young Member Advisory Committee, which involves pre-med students and medical students. And we are now launching, in fact, it has launched a mentoring app that we're just starting to get out there to, to connect people who want to mentor. So pre-med students who want a medical student or resident mentor or older physician mentor. And so if there's a listener out there who uh, is a student or a resident or even a physician in practice that is looking for a mentor and how to be fully Catholic in your specialty, please just email info, I-N-F-O, at cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And we can help connect you to physicians and students who are willing to be mentors, because I think relationships are key in this, don't you, Bill? Oh, absolutely. Relationships are key. And I think back over my career where I didn't make a conscious effort of that, but in striving to be successful in climbing the academic ladder, inevitably you make those connections. And I think that's the big turning point in the last three years of my part-time practice as an emeritus professor that, uh, that you know, I realize you, you can't do that. And I think, you know, there, there's good company, even in a secular world. I mean, I, I think about um, Dr. Paul McHugh in Johns Hopkins, and for, he, he literally just told the truth about what he perceived as a smart psychiatrist in training and then in ultimately in practice, and then ultimately became the chair for some 40 years. And he blocked the surgery on transgender changes and transsexual where you'd surgery. He said, you know, we do people a disservice when we send them to a surgeon with this desire rather than to a psychiatrist. And unfortunately, you know, he, like me in, in retirement, I think he's in his 90s now, um, is still telling the truth. And I think we're all called to do that. And ultimately, time will vindicate us because this is a terribly misguided perception, not based on science. And, th- and that's the thing that is important. And I think what's very attractive of our viewpoint as, as Catholic physicians, it's, uh, it's, it's very attractive to be telling the truth. Well, I think that's something for our listeners to take home is that you don't have to just, like you said, Bill, you don't have to claim, oh, this is a, a me thing. This is against my beliefs. No, when truth's really on your side, there's the science there too. If you don't have it, find somebody through the mentoring app that can and come to the CMA, come to the boot camp specially designed for students and come to the annual education conference. That's well said. And I, I think that without that, uh, it is going to be very hard. With it, I think all things are possible. With that, with prayer, with the Holy Spirit guiding us, uh, we, we, will, we will proceed, we'll, we'll, we'll persist, we'll, uh, we'll be What's successful. What's been the reception in the Portland area to your clinic that you plan to open on Mary's birthday, September 8th? Well, you know, that's not a coincidence. Uh, we we uh, <laughs> believe that uh, the Holy Family wouldn't happen without, without Mary. So the, the reality is it's actually been quite bright. We're, we have well over 100 people signed up, and we're already into uh, Athena as the epic equivalent kind of thing that we're using as an EMR. We were on a Zoom with them today and got three scheduled for next, next time. We've got our malpractice in place. Basically, the people are overwhelming enthusiastic. This has been primarily by word of mouth. We've been blessed by a couple articles, including I think the one you saw, Tom, that got picked up, oddly enough, by the Boston Pilot, which I think is a Catholic periodical. Yes. And interesting enough, I mean, oddly enough, somebody must like me in university communications at OHSU because they actually pointed to that article in the OHSU paper, you know, telling 14,000, 15,000 people who work there that you know, Dr. Toffler's starting to practice and it's <laughs> featured in this article. Go figure. I mean, you know, here we are. Bill, it has been a pleasure having you. I can't think of anybody who exemplifies truth in medicine with as much charity as you display. Thanks for being with us here on Dr. Doctor. It's been a blessing and uh, we'll have to pray. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the long-awaited answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, on Dr. Toffler's website for Holy Family Clinic, 
and it's holyfamilyclinic.com opening september 8th in portland oregon he's wearing a white coat physicians didn't always wear white coats they wore a different color before 1900 what color was it andrew do you know i am not as old as you tom i was not there ouch ouch i'm just kidding <laughs> doesn't hurt that much but zing that color was black yeah, yeah see, that's hard to envision isn't it i read black for two reasons one priests and clergy wore black because they did something that was considered serious or, or noble or respectful also because it was very bloody and as we know black you know uh blocks the appearance of blood better than white does well i did, tell that to veronica my wife because she she does not prefer black tennis shoes but i'm like hey if you're doing colonoscopies or if you're doing incision and drainages, you got to have black tennis shoes. Uh, I'm with you, Andrew. I on. wear black tennis shoes also when I operate for just that reason. The second part of the question is where did they steal the idea of white coats from? It was laboratory scientists who still wear white coats. I wonder if that goes back to Osler and the whole idea of trying to bring structure to the medical education. I don't know if there's something there. Yeah, it's it, That's when it started around the Flexner report around 1910. Osler was a part of that whole movement. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our great storytelling episode with Dr. Bill Toffler. Who wouldn't want to see him as their doctor? Well, you, you can understand how he's so how he's so lovable and he succeeded in a place that's tough to succeed in for so long. I would just reinforce the idea that if somebody's listening to this and you haven't, if you're especially in medicine, you haven't been to a CMA event, I would strongly encourage you to go. I wish I would have went earlier. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association coming to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio and the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Be sure to rate and review us because it helps new listeners find us. And please send us your questions. Tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life. Or tell us ideas of things you'd like to hear about in the future. And most of all, be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.